All right, let's pray, let's go, let's pray, let's go. Thank you very much. Good to see you. 19 Sundays after Trinity, if you're paying attention, here we go. Almighty and everlasting God, for the sake of your own mercy, keep us far from everything that opposes you, unhindered in body and soul, that we may serve you with hearts set free. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Good to see all of you. Thanks very much. It was nice to see more and more kids back this morning. So we had, uh, you know, enough crowd noise to overrule us and also kids dancing in the aisles this morning. That was very nice. Turn them loose. The worst thing that could happen to your kid is they have to sit next to me up top. So not a, it's not a big deal. If you rush the stage, they hand you a guitar. That's what happens, right? That's exactly right. So anyway, it's good to, good to see. It's been an uh, interesting, uh, fun weekend. There's been a lot going on. It's nice to have all of you back. So uh, just questions about anything? You all okay? Everybody good? Um, I'm going to be away next week. Uh, Pastor Kendall will come. So come here, Pastor Kendall. Um, you know, we've been trying to go away a little bit. So there's a bunch of us going away to Greece and Turkey. So I will get to see Hagia Sophia before I die, which is a very interesting place. You remember a few years ago in an archaeological dig, they found a chalice that had an inscription around the rim that was the same inscription that was on the uh, main altar at Hagia Sophia. So they're pretty confident they have the chalice that was used at the altar when Hagia Sophia was built, this gorgeous uh, cathedral, kind of a wonder uh, of the Christian church. It says around the rim, as you receive the Eucharist, thine of thine own we offer you, O Lord. So your own son is what is offered back to you, Heavenly Father, but only because you offer it to us, right? So this genius sort of understanding of the Eucharist as gift and blessing as energy. So, I mean, that'll be, you can say a prayer for us. We'll see what happens. It's since, uh, you know, in the last year or so, it's been turned from a museum back into a mosque. So we'll see kind of how that works out, but that should be an interesting time. But otherwise, we're going to catch up with Dr. Just uh, in Athens and kind of tinker around in some of Paul's places. That'll be fun. You know I've, you can show me a little more respect. In my younger days, I drank from the Oracle at Delphi. I'm just saying. It was a little mossy, and I wouldn't do it again. But uh, when you're young, you do that kind of stuff. So, you know, who knows what's happened. Anyway, to the first bit, life is really messy. And that's really what, uh, what we've been talking about the past few weeks, that life is very, very messy, and you don't know whom to trust. It's so interesting. I um, Just observing in the news, I, so a lot of times now I just read headlines because News reports on all sides are so partisan. But one of the things I have noticed, I think this is fairly objective, you know, uh, it used to be that politicians and and newscasters would uh, call the other side wrong. And then it got to be uh, where, particularly in political times, the other side was radical or outrageous. And then the next step was that they're crazy. And now what's interesting in the last month or so, I've observed several news headlines from different directions where uh, especially newscasters are calling other uh, people who disagree with them evil. It's a very interesting shift, right? Because evil is the, that's the uh, purview of the church. Prophets get to decide who's right and wrong. Even as you listen about the debates in Washington right now when people say 
of another person's position. <clears throat> that's immoral, right? So that's very interesting in a country that has 63 million abortions that politicians would say that's immoral. One should at least ask the question, uh, what does moral mean, right? So high taxes are immoral, low taxes are immoral. It comes from both both sides, right? Uh, it's, just, it's just very interesting how the shift uh, has has moved normal folks into prophetic positions. And if you're uh, a prophet, you remember, and you get it wrong, you remember in the Old Testament uh, what happens if you're a prophet and, and it doesn't come true. What happens to you? You get stoned, which would be an interesting... Uh, <laughs> When there's no pushback or there's no punishment for calling another person evil and you have to go some, you have to go some ways to say about another person they're evil, uh, or another side or your enemies, right? So Jesus has no enemies. So you have no enemies, right? This is a very interesting time. You can see then why people are so stirred up and nobody trusts anybody anymore. Right, and that's in some ways our last couple of years, but it's been for a long time now, has really been this crisis of trust. What I've tried to show you over the past few weeks is that really is a theological crisis. I mean, the most basic thing is we can't tell our idols from God. Or it's the sermon for this morning. We can't tell our the difference between the pleasure we find from our things, creatures, our stuff, and the pleasure we find in the presence of God. Right at Jesus' feet. So we can't we can't tell the difference between idols and God. Um, we can't we can't uh, figure out whether we whom we should be suspicious of. Um, you know, 30 years ago when I was doing a PhD, you know, the hermeneutics of suspicion was sort of a academic way. Now it's everywhere. Hermeneutics of suspicion is you always distrust and deconstruct, you distrust and take apart, pull into pieces whatever has gone before you. Uh, it's helpful academics sometimes. It's a horrible way to live. If you're trying to have a relationship with another person and you presume that everything you say to me is a lie and everything I say to you is a lie, that's the reason people are alienated and angry and alone. Because we're made in the image of the Trinity, we're meant to live in community. And if we presume, and you see, I'm, I'm telling you the same thing in all different ways, but the manifestations of it are all different. If you presume that the person you're talking to is evil, if you presume the, presume the person you're talking to is a liar, if you presume that the person you're talking to is your enemy, nothing ever goes anyway. Everybody is siloed and we are divided and scattered. And so from the very first week, Diablos, the name for devil, the definition of that is to scatter or divide. So if you wonder why the world is in so much pain, why our nation is in so much pain, why churches are in so much pain, why our church is in so much pain, begin to ask your questions about whether or not people identify the other as wrong, radical, insane, evil, liar, that will take you in one direction, enemy. Or if you identify them as brother or sister in Christ or worthy of human dignity, or at least pulling at some natural good 
or another opinion to be reckoned with. This is not just to say, and you know this from what I've said the last few weeks, that everything is okay and you can do whatever you want. Far from it. But it is a strong confidence, which the church should still exhibit, that there is good, that there is natural law, that there is truth, and that there are truth tellers, and they should be found in the church. And we should not capitulate to people who, um, you know, who want to tell us our business. When I go to a new doctor, I always say to him, I'm not going to look at Google and I'm going to be your best patient you've ever had because I'm going to do exactly what you tell me. Right. Hmm, obviously, that doesn't resonate with you. I thought it was pretty good. Uh, but I always think people who actually, you know, spent, you know, eight years getting a medical degree and have cut up open a thousand people before they got to me. I'm like, that's better than my next door neighbor who got an exacto knife left over from ninth grade science class. I'm just going to go with the doctor. Right. I know experts are out of fashion, but you should ask yourself why. So I just sort of give you these questions. And how can I love and not hate? How can I live in community and not be alienated from everybody else? How can my life be virtue and not vice? This is the same question over and over and over again. You just have to see that this is just the question of good and evil coming at you from all directions. Do I go this way? Big W. Jesus, follow me today in the gospel. Ah, that guy. Chance to be apostle number 13, right? This is so great. They wouldn't have had that dice game in Acts if this guy would have just come along. Judas goes out. He comes in. They got 12. That's tribes of Israel. On we go. You see how much better I could have worked this out if I was in charge? Reoccurring theme in my life. Kirby. Just kidding. I know you're not. I love you. You've proved that over and over again through the years. Really, honestly. So, you know, where is joy? The question of the gospel today, where is satisfaction? What does it mean to be divine? Right. What does it mean to be forgiven? These are all questions that come to us. What I want to shift you to, and I'm going to come back to this when I see you again, uh, is what I want to shift you to or suggest to you is that this is the same question in many different ways. The question of trust is actually a question of truth. And that's very difficult in a world especially in a world that doesn't respect truth. Truth only became popular again in the last five years because truth became a way to win elections and report news. We have the truth. No, we have the truth. There were people have spent a hundred, 200 years since the enlightenment arguing the truth is relative or that you can have truthiness or you can have my truth and your truth. But now suddenly when we want to mobilize people, we appeal again to a truth. Even the New York times, you know, they had a new advertising slogan. I, you know, I'd Google it up if I thought it would come up in this room. It wasn't all the news fit to print got replaced by, you know, uh, a moniker for their advertising, at least, that we report the truth. You kind of go, really? That for only $250 a year just on Sundays. You kind of go, okay. So I've turned the page as you did already. So see the question is this way. Whom can I trust and for what? Or whom do I seek and why? This is like, you know, this is the great, you know, attorneys are fabulous because they always like they get it into, you know, the attorneys in this church have taught me to ask always one thing. What do you want? Right. It's a beautiful question. What do you want? It's what Jesus says to the guy in the gospel for today. What do you want? It's a question for all of you. What is it that you want in all the people you're believing in all the people you're listening to in all the folks you're not listening to? 
and that you're discounting. Behind that lies what you want. And part of what the church is trying to do is to get you to want what's meaningful, what's purposeful, what's true, what's divine, what's forgiving, what's Christic, what's incarnational, what's Trinitarian. The church's proclamation is that the incarnation is the truest thing that ever happened. And in the face of Jesus, you see God. Very simple assertion. And you're either going to decide that that's true or it's not true. You're going to follow it or not follow it. You embrace that and say, this is everything to me. Or you say, I'll take somebody else. The world is littered with people who have taken other people and come to ruin. And the world is full of saints who have said, you know, just as they were about to be filleted. Uh, hey, as Polycarp says, I'm 96. Why would I deny Jesus now? He's never done anything but good to me. Yeah, that's where you're going. So Jesus met most of Oh, sorry. And then I give you a couple of things um, here. There's a couple of ways to ask the question, even in the scripture. So you remember in John 12, we want to see Jesus. In my first parish, there was an old guy, an old pastor who used to take me out to play golf, but we weren't playing golf. He was giving me an advanced degree in being a pastor. But I came to my, I came to my, the pulpit the first time I was going to preach and he had, put a brass plaque in the pulpit. I walked up unbeknownst to me and it just said across the, in this, this very like forward, uh, you walk up for the first time and it says, it's this quote, sir, we would see Jesus, right? You kind of go, I mean, you got to have some chutzpah to mess in another guy's, uh, pulpit. Like that's sort of, you kind of like, but he was worthy of it. Uh, this guy, Oh, he's an old man and well-respected, and he was very kind to me. So in the one sense, you say, people would say, you know, hey, we would, sir, we would see Jesus, right? The King James version of this. The Greeks come to Philip and they say, man, that is, get us close, right? Backstage tickets. And then, of course, you remember, these are the very same words that are used when Judas meets Jesus in Gethsemane. Uh, and Jesus says it. Whom do you seek, Right? So, Philip, whom do you seek? We would see Jesus. Judas, or Jesus, whom do you seek? Judas, we would see Jesus. Right? So there's all kinds of different ways to use Jesus. What is it that you want? That's the question. And you should start, you know, thinking through when when people, um, <laughs> you should ask what people want from you. What are people trying to sell you? What vote do they want? You know, what is it that they hope that you'll give them? Your obeisance? your money, your attention, your support. What is it that people want from you? And ask yourself what it is that Jesus wants from you. What Jesus wants is your eternal salvation mediated to you through the scriptures and the sacraments. That's what Jesus wants for you. Jesus wants you to come home to Eden. It is that simple. What do all these other people who are making claims to truth want? You should ask yourself every time somebody talks to you, what is it that they want from you? But this is the primary question. So um, Jesus met, you know, all kinds of folks. And as a pastor and as a congregation, as church and as people, you got to figure out Sunday comes every week. You got to figure out what you're going to do from the very first day I was here. You know, there's been a couple of things that have driven me. But one is the story of the feeding of the 5000. So Jesus looks out 
you remember how this worked. Jesus had done some healings and some care for people. And um, so he tries to go away with the disciples. They want to get some rest. And, you know, they can see Jesus sailing and they, you know, they run around the lake to get to the other side to beat him. And when he gets there, then it's full of people. And he's like, I just need a day off. And all these people are like, yeah, but my kid is dying. And there's a demon over here. And that person has a withered arm. And we're really hungry. And which, So this is an interesting thing. The Gospels record that Jesus looked out at them. And he had compassion. So this, he, is, he pities them, right? If you can just think about you, you've, you know what this reaction is when you see somebody who's quite broken or quite poor or starving or you see things on, you know, that reaction that you have when you go, like, it's almost, it's involuntary. You can, like, that's the, that's the word, right? So, so Jesus had compassion on them and then he didn't heal them. He didn't feed them. He didn't talk to them. He didn't touch them first. Jesus had compassion on them and he taught them. And so you should realize that you teach your way out of troubles, right? This is why St. John has always had such an emphasis on coming to Bible study and catechesis and putting your kids in Sunday school. And um, that's the reason why, because when Jesus has compassion on us, Jesus teaches us. He pulls us close and he tells us the secret to life. And so uh, we should, you know, this is why I've said over the years, all the heavy lifting is done in, right here in this room. Every Sunday, voters meetings, that's just mopping up. The heavy lifting is done here. When you listen to Jesus' prophetic voice, you understand what is good and what is evil. You look at the resources you have. You look at the people around you, and you try to do your best for the kingdom of God. When Jesus says, follow me, you do your best to follow. But the only way you ever know that is... uh, is to to learn. So when Jesus loves you, Jesus teaches you. Now, just this is the last point under number two. Um, Just to be clear, teaching is not a data dump. So often, I've told you often the story of my grandmother, the only kid in her confirmation class, uh, and she had to sit on a hot afternoon in an Iowa church in the country and answer every question at the back of the catechism, on her own in German. Then she could finally have the Lord's Supper, which, as you know, is exactly what Jesus did on Monday, Thursday. (laughs) Yes, of course, it has to do with data. Of course, it has to do with reason. But just by the by, friends, reason isn't the only way you know things. In fact, some ways it's sort of overrated. You know things by way of beauty, right? You know things by way of love. You know things by way of divine revelation. Of course, these things need to be woven together because you're body, soul, and mind, and spirit, right? But there are some things you see that are so wonderful, like the incense going around the icon, that you can hardly speak, right? Or when the chalice is elevated and what you're supposed to see is, you know, the blood that's from dripping down from the nail in Jesus' feet or from his side or from his hands, that blood is dripping down into the chalice. That's what you're supposed to see at the elevation. So when you're given these things to think about, um, you know, it's not, it is reason, of course, and reason is extraordinarily valuable. Reason is also the cause of many of the problems we have right now. 
right? So we have to kind of think this all the way through. John Kleinig's latest book on it is a guy um, by the name of Henry Hammond. It's just being released as London Notes. And it's Hammond is kind of all the rage in academic circles. So it means, you know, 20 years from now. But Hammond was the guy that Kant was most afraid of, right? And he... He, he, and they knew each other. In fact, I think they might have been roommates for a, a little while, but I got to go back and read the book. But, you know, this pure reason is the way forward. Well, maybe, but. Um, and Haman makes this great argument for the inspiration of Scripture. He says things like, as Jesus condescended to come to us in his flesh, the Holy Spirit condescends to us to speak our language. That's beautiful, right? The Lord loves you and he stoops to you. And how does he tell you? Well, one way is the body and blood. Another way is he whispers in your ear. It's a beautiful way of thinking about life, which is very different from tagging enemies and calling people evil and killing those who disagree with you. You just have to think this stuff all the way through. This is where, you know, people are so nervous about the church and what's going to happen. You actually shouldn't be thinking about that. Outcomes do not lie in your hands. You know, you have today to be faithful and outcomes belong to the Lord. What we should be thinking about is being faithful, doing the things the Lord has given us to do. And then the chips fall where they fall. So um, Jesus' solution wasn't just to, to, to touch them, but then to teach them, right? And so this teaching and touching goes together. I've often said to you that the gospel is touch, right? God rubs his words into your ears. Everybody knows by now that sound is as much of a sacrament as um, the body and the blood. Why? Because just because you can't see the sound waves coming off my vocal cords and puffing into your ears, just because you can't see it, it's not happening. Word and sacrament in some way is an artificial distinction, right? I give you, um, this is one of my favorite things, sound is touch, right? This is like completely secular, radio lab. We're used to thinking of sounds as being about something. Speech is always about something, but it feels to me more like touch. Touch isn't about something. If you whack me on the arm with a sudden sharp way, I'm gonna be startled. A gentle touch has a different effect. And I think, you know, actually, Sound is kind of touch at a distance. Isn't that great? It's not a pastor talking, that's a scientist. Sound is touch at a distance. I love the guys. Chris, man, I love you, and you're way back there. But you know I love you, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not close enough to kiss you on the cheek, but I love you, right? Sound is touch at a distance. And of course, Luther said this in, in a way too. When you pray, you rub God's you rub God's words into God's ears, right? Sound is touch at a distance. Now, what happens then is you begin to treat people like this, right? What do you want? What do they want from you? What God wants from you is to have you home again in Eden. He wants to console you. It is so, you know, people are complete despair about the church. And there are some, there are some things to despair about the church. In the church, you know, you saw this horrible report you know, about the church in France this, that came out this week, right? And you can, you know, it makes you, it makes you want to burn it down and start over. You can't, you just, you can't, you can't believe this kind of stuff, right? But given all of that, you know, all around us, the church, churches are imploding for a range of reasons, including, you know, some of our churches. 
Okay, there's nothing I can do about that. I'm pastor of these two square blocks. And on our two square blocks, what we're going to do is receive the touch of the gospel. That's what we're going to do. We're going to try to satisfy your hearts with things that are divine. And for you to do that, see, there's nothing new here. This is just the basic rhythm of the Christian life, Christ and scripture and prayer and tithing and alms and going to the Eucharist and living mercifully in a way that is this great witness to the world. It's all of a bundle. Right? So every week, I mean, it was fun. We, you know, it was a good experience. We almost ran out of hosts at the Eucharist. Mary, wherever you are, that's not a bust on you, Mary. That it means we got up the game again next week, right? So we almost, and we almost ran out last week. So Mary increased it. We almost ran out this week. What does that mean? It means people are coming back to church. The kid noise, I, I kid you not, in the first service when the kid noise was louder than my sermon, we should have just all just, I should have just stopped and sat down and let them go. Cause it was fabulous, right? That shooty girl would have made a run for the altar. That'd have been great. Cause the DeClute kids would have come too. Then we'd really had church. Hallelujah. So, um, this is, it's just, it's so much fun. We can only do what we can do, but y'all, we need to be doing this, right? And point number four then, and I give you a little bit of Bonhoeffer here, which we're going to get to later, but I, I wanted to come to him later because he's a bit more difficult. But I just want to, I want you to use this as a critique for the church, but also a critique for the world. Because if it is really true that what we're facing is a matter of good versus evil or idolatry versus God, right? And the real test for that is to ask what people want from us and what we want, right? This gives you a lot of clarity. So under point four, genuine spiritual authority is to be found only where the ministry of hearing, helping, bearing, and proclaiming is carried out. So that's just another way of talking about the rhythm of the Christian life. We talk about that all the time. Hearing and helping and bearing and proclaiming. Every cult of personality that emphasizes the distinguished qualities, virtues, talents of another person. So that could be you. That could be me, but it could also be you. So think about this. Anytime your focus is on another person, right? Even though these be of an altogether spiritual nature, is worldly and has no place in the Christian community. You know, this is why you show proper respect for your pastors, but you don't idolize your pastors. You show proper respect for your leaders, but you don't idolize your leaders. Right? In the church, there's another way to think about this. They would, in medieval times, they would talk about the instrumentum secundum, the secondary instrument. So you are all secondary instruments. God is the primary mover, the primary instrument. Then he uses you like tools from a toolbox. And that's the same thing that he does with pastors. Your pastors are never the big deal. Your pastors are delivery boys, right? They get the body and blood from the altar onto your lips or the word into your ears. I mean, there's more to it, of course, but the point is that the focus is always on Christ. The desire we so often hear expressed today for Episcopal figures, if my guy could just win the next synodical election, for priestly men, he's a good man, that's a bad man. For authoritative personalities. You know what we need? We need somebody around here who will just tell us what to do. Hey, by the way, I'm your guy. So, uh, springs frequently enough, look, from a spiritually sick need for the admiration of men. 
for the establishment, and this is really important, of a visible human authority. Because the genuine authority appears to be so unimpressive, especially Jesus crucified. There is nothing that so sharply contradicts such a desire as the New Testament in its description of a bishop. One finds there nothing whatsoever with respect to worldly charm and brilliant authorities of spiritual personality. The bishop is the simple, faithful man, sound in faith and in life, who rightly discharges his duties to the church. His authority lies in the exercise of his ministry. Now, here's the thing. Pastors can ride this all day long as they dominate you. But I just I just want to be clear that Jesus' ministry is primarily a ministry of love. And what you really have to understand deeply is that love and obedience and healing and forgiveness and Eucharist and mercy and witness are all the same word. When things work, those are all synonyms, right? Now, for you who are, you know, adept, yes, I'm working in the realm of just of sanctification or not the not the realm of justification. Justification is being forgiven. Sanctification is living forgiven. When you live a forgiven life from the gifts which our Lord has given you, then love and service and mercy and healing and good works, that's all the same stuff. And of course, you know, it's not a good work until it's a forgiven work. And that then keeps you from taking any sort of credit for the good that's done. It's not a good work until it's a forgiven work. You know, an old Norman Nagel over the cigar maxim. So listening to Jesus with your ears and your heart and your hands, this is point five, with heart and soul and mind and strength, as Jesus says, that's the way home. You want to know what to do? What do you want? You know what you want if you're a Christian? You want to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, which is you want to love him with everything you've got. That's just another way of saying the whole bundle. You can say body and soul. You can say intellect and will. You can say body, soul, mind, body, soul. It doesn't matter. This is a Hebrew way of talking, that everything you've got is bundled together, and it all pulls in the direction that follows Jesus. And if it pulls in the direction that follows anybody but Jesus, it's idolatry, and it's dumb, D-U-M, dumb. It is wrong, okay? It is a wrong turn. So now and right, you should listen. You should listen with your ears. You should listen with your eyes. You should listen with your heart. You know the famous prayer where Solomon could have anything he wanted before he became king. And if you translate the Hebrew, it says, he prayed for a heart with ears. He prayed for a listening heart. Right? Which is whole different than listening ears. But you need those too. To listen is very hard. And nobody listens to anybody anymore. It is a swift assertion and then a move to power. Because why should I listen to people who are other than me, who are enemies, who are evil, who are insane, who are radical, who are outrageous, who are absolute? Why should I listen to any of them? Why should I listen to my enemies? See, this is the world in which we live, and sometimes even in the church. And this, of course, is why we have so much trouble. Here's the other side. To listen is very hard because it asks us of so much interior stability 
that we no longer need to prove ourselves by speeches, arguments, statements, and declarations. That is, that is the media all day long. And I'm not like a media basher, but that's, that's what people are on. That's pick one. They're proving themselves that they are your God. True listeners no longer have an inner need to make their presence known. They're free to receive, to welcome, to accept, to have an expert, to not be the smartest guy in the room, to follow along when somebody else has greater talent or a better idea. Listening is much more than allowing another to talk while waiting for a chance to respond. Listening is paying full attention to other. Okay, there's the reasonable part. But here's the listening with the heart part and welcoming them into our very beings. The beauty of listening is that those who are listened to start feeling accepted. There it is, the move from individuals to community. How do you show people you love them? You listen to them deeply with your heart, not just with your ears. You start taking their words more seriously and discovering their true selves. Listening is a form of spiritual hospitality by which you invite strangers to become friends, to get to know their inner selves more fully and even dare to be silent. So I'm just going to turn the page. I'm going to turn the page to prove that I can never finish an outline. That's the reason I'm turning the page. I really was, I had, you know, I cut the last eight pages of this off because I thought, gee, there's not enough here. So I'm a little, I'm a little, I got a little bit of dissonance going on inside my head. But see if you can work with this a little while, test this, right? Um, this is the, so I try to give you the order of how things work, right? So we talked about humility, but humility starts with memory that um, bestows gratitude, right? So it goes memory, gratitude, humility. So you can't hit humility by aiming at it. You got to aim at something else. In the same way, um, love engenders truth or engenders trust and, and that bestows truth. Love engenders trust and bestows truth. So it goes, the order goes love, trust, truth. You're not going to trust anybody that hates you. You're just not, which, you know, here's the thing. I could shut down cable news for a day with that. If you if you only if, if you have the sense that just turn it off if you have the sense that the people talking to you hate you. Because it's not going to go any farther. Now, theologically, divine love. So the Lord comes to you and says, I love you, I want you home, I forgive everything. Here's Jesus to prove it. Let him wash you up and let's play. Right? We did this a few weeks ago. Jesus took him close and said, don't worry about that stuff. He washed him up and said, letters to Greco, remember? He washed him up and said, go over there and play. Okay. Now, see, we say the same thing. Third article of the catechism. I believe that I cannot, with my own reason or strength, believe. I believe I can't believe. Which means I live totally from gift. Which means that God loves me. Which means I'm happy to follow. Because nobody ever loved me like this before. Right. And so Jesus word um, does this work. He speaks to us. He loves us. He touches us and he builds a relationship with us and we follow him. And I, you know, part of it, I know there's all sorts of ways to go with this, but part of this is, you know, this is an old saw, but you know this. It's like you're always following somebody. 
It's like when if I have couples who come into my office and say, you know, they sit on opposite ends of the couch and they say, we don't communicate. I'm like, wow, seems like you're communicating very clearly to me. Love communicates. Love builds a relationship. Love blesses. Love bestows. Love changes. Love engenders trust. It builds trust. It is the source of trust. Right? So the Holy Spirit comes to you. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. And he breathes life into you. Jesus comes to you and you're wholly sinful. You're dead. And he washes you up with his own blood. And he resurrects you. The only proper response to that is, thank you very much, and I'd like some more, please. That's the only, that's the only conceivable, and I would even say to you, reasonable response to someone who has resurrected you, not just to your own life, but to a life that's eternally washed in the divine. Come on. So divine words build a divine relationship with the divine word, big W, with Jesus. Uh, the second person of the, the word, the, the second person of the Trinity, the word speaks words uh, that build a relationship with us, right? Now, um, I've given you a long piece from Pilate, and I'm going to come back to this when I see you again. And then we're going to talk about this in relationship to the high priestly prayer, which happened just before it. So I've tried to set, set here's what I've tried to do for you. I've tried to show you how people use the same words and mean something very different. And they use the same words and they do it for very different purposes. They do it some because they want their own good and some because they want your good. And that's the difference between sinfulness and holiness. Sinfulness wants its own good. It's turned in on itself. Holiness wants your good. Holiness only comes from God. What does God want? He wants you home. That's your good. He wants to pull you back. You can read this if you want, this little bit from Jesus back and forth uh, with Pilate, where Jesus, they ask Jesus questions and he answers, and then you know he gets beating for it. And it ends with the famous thing, which you know, you know, Pilate saying, What is truth? This everything I've talked about happens in this story. There's a suspicious of Jesus. They begin with the notion that he's a liar, they begin with the notion that he's an insurrectionist. They begin with the notion that he is evil, that he's guilty, and nothing he can say or do can save him. What is truth? Right, Jesus, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Everybody who loves me feels my touch in their ears, right? And Pilate says, I'm not having it. What is truth? There is no truth. Pilate could have got like a PhD in 1950s in America. At any, you know, Ivy League school. This is, this is the, this is the question of the hermeneutics of suspicion. Be suspicious of everybody because there is no truth. Right? This, what's so interesting is, you know, when people despair and like, we've never seen you before, we don't know what to do. Are you kidding me? The story's right here. It's, it's so much the same and frankly less interesting that it's boring. I mean, the people today are nothing compared to Pilate. Pilate was at least playing a high stakes game. Right now, I mean, it's a tiny battle over maybe the United States or the fate of the world. Yeah, that's uh, really not a big deal compared to you're about to kill God. Yeah, yeah, I can't believe that. Let's go with it. I'm busy tomorrow. All right. 
I just gave you something on the last page because we got to go to church, but try to remember where the story ends. These things I have spoken to you. What does Jesus want for you? What does Jesus want? He wants you. What does he want for you? He wants your joy. These things I've spoken to you that your joy, that my joy might be in you. So divine joy. These things I've spoken to you so that you're filled with divine joy. My joy is in you. And then this, what everybody seeks. And your joy is full, not partial, not incomplete, not defective, not just getting through to the next day. I've spoken this, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The only thing that satisfies your broken heart is divine joy, divine love. That's the only thing that will satisfy your heart. Everything else you will find out sooner or later will be unsatisfying, leave you broken and listless and alone. You know, the problem is most people spend their lives testing that thesis. But if you run the same experiment over and over and over and over and over again, and you keep getting bad results, maybe try something else, right? So I've come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Whoosh. I'm the good shepherd, remember? And this is where we started. Jesus saw the people and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so he taught them, right? So, and the, the finally the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. All right, that's a bundle of stuff. But what I'm trying to get, what I'm trying to help you do is I'm trying to give you a grid to walk out into the world and not be overwhelmed. In fact, I'm trying to give you a grid to walk out into the world and actually be hopeful, to not despair. Like this is the, I, you know, I had, I always know when tension's up because somebody says to me, you know, do you think this is the end of the world? It's not even close, right? Fire and brimstone and boils, then come back and see me. But until then, you know, just go to the Eucharist, okay? Uh, I'm trying to give you a, a way to think about a very difficult world at a time where finally it's clear that Christianity is not in charge and America is not a Christian nation. Finally, it's explicit. But I'm trying to give you a way to where Christians have begun to suffer here, like they, you know, at least no, you know, Nigerian militians have rolled in on motorcycles and shot you all and set the place on fire, which is, you know, a normal Sunday occurrence in northern Nigeria. It's not even close. So what we do need to do is, though, have a grid so we can walk it into the world, be faithful, not hate other people, live in divine love, have some joy hang together as a community, and, you know, revolve around the altar. Is this too much to ask? It's not too much to ask. It's actually not. And if you have some other life, it's because you've chosen it. It's all here for you. Jesus is here giving you his gifts. Hold on. It gets better, but you really got to hold on, right? And that's not beyond you. Okay, love you. Here we go. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, love you, see you, bye.